0: Welcome again we got a great show for you The gang is here
1: (laughs) Good
2: night
3: All right, so we were just In a room back there Talking for the last hour And then they came in Opened the door Whisked us down A nondescript hallway Sent us through an unmarked door and the lights are blaring, it's a little hard to see. So I don't, maybe you can help us out. I'm not really sure where we are at this point. Are there any fans of the Energy Gang podcast in this room? <laughs> All right, good, so we're in the right place. Uh, with that out of the way, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. And this week, we are live at WNYC's Green Space in Lower Manhattan. I'm Steven Lacey a managing editor with Green Tech Media. Welcome, thank you all very much for being here. We've got a good lineup for you. Uh, We're really excited to be here. We love this venue and we love getting together in a live setting. So we've got the regular gang here and a couple uh, folks that we're gonna initiate uh, in front of a live studio audience and we'll see how they do here. Uh, Let me introduce my regular co-host, Catherine Hamilton is the uh, co-founder and a partner at 38 North Solutions. She's based in Washington, D.C. She is uh, our resident policy expert. And despite talking to politicians all day and spending most of her time on Capitol Hill, she's our resident optimist, which I still haven't <laughs> figured out. How are I you? I haven't
4: figured that out either, but thank you. Ned. Well, it it's rubs really off. great to yeah.
3: be here. <laughs> Shah is on his home turf. He's based here in New York City. He's the president of Generate Capital. He is uh, our resident business model, innovation expert, our finance expert, and the most strong headed of the group. Jigger, how are you? <laughs> I love being in my hometown. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's welcome our two guests this week. Yulia Chernova is a reporter with the Wall Street Journal. She covers startups, venture capital, for the venture wire, and uh, she covers a lot of different industries and with energy and clean tech being uh, a part of her reporting. Hey, Julia.
0: Hi. Welcome. Thank you.
3: And Chris Martin is a reporter here in New York as well with Bloomberg. He also covers energy and clean tech. Chris, how are you? Covering a lot of different businesses in the space. A yes. lot on Sun Edison recently. Do you have busy. Sun Edison burnout? Yes. Uh, <laughs> glad to be here though. Thank you. So, I hope you don't have Sun Edison burnout because we are going to talk about that company. <laughs> As part, of, as part of our first. So, some segment. friends
2: of mine were going to play a drinking game tonight about how many times we mentioned Sun Edison. Ooh. And I was going to tell them, no, just once. Yeah, this, they're I, done. I, I, yeah, I well. hope they're drinking Budweiser. I
3: yeah.
4: <laughs> they have a dedicated driver.
3: They are done. Okay, so as regular listeners know, we break our show up into three topics. We pick uh, the top news stories of the week and discuss them dissect them, debate them, hopefully get some good debate in, hopefully we'll get some tonight. Uh, And then this week we're taking a bunch of different stories and putting them together into three different themes. So here's what we're going to be talking about. In the first segment we're going to try to put the many high profile clean clean tech company failures and the general energy market turmoil into context. Our second segment's going to be a bit local, we're going to talk about New York, we'll look at the staggering amount of activity here in the state. Uh, on energy market reform and on solar development, a lot of exciting stuff happening. And in our third segment, we're going to look at where energy and climate fits into presidential politics. It's been a crazy race, and we'll talk about where it's fit into the campaign, the primary season thus far, and then what the candidates are likely to talk about going forward. So, everyone ready to go? Yeah. Abengoa, Sun Edison, and Next Step Living, NRG. A year or two ago, these companies were considered leaders in the energy transition. Today, they become case studies for poor business strategy or cautionary examples of the fickle nature of the public markets. Late last month, Sun Edison, a top-tier global renewable energy developer, uh, a company that was co-founded by Jigger in 2003, he left in 2008, <clears throat> filed for bankruptcy protection after a series of expensive, risky ventures. Just nine months ago, execs were talking about Sun Edison. As the world's first renewable energy supermajor. Now it's getting stripped down to the very basics and you know they're selling off all the projects they can. Abengoa, another behemoth global developer, also recently filed for bankruptcy protection. Like Sun Edison, the company took on way too much debt to fuel growth and they're suffering for it now in a big way. NRG, of course, recently fired its visionary CEO, David Crane after investors soured on his plan to transform the power producer into a renewable energy powerhouse. Next Step Living, a Massachusetts efficiency and solar provider considered a model for the state's green jobs program, shut down its top-heavy business, crushing much of the 80 million that VCs had pumped into the company. These are just a few of the troubles that we've seen. But meanwhile, the macro trends for renewables, particularly renewable electricity, are just phenomenal. We're seeing record cost drops. We're seeing record investment flows pretty dramatic business innovation. You know, companies are figuring out deployment models. Uh, so what gives? I want to talk about a few different things here. One is to put these problems into context. Um, I want to ask how they're impacting investment, both uh, for, for project finance and in and venture capital. And, and then I want to look at like, where the money is flowing, like where the smart money is going in clean energy. So let's, let's start off with a, with a bang here. Jigger. let's talk about Sun Edison. We've discussed this company so much on the, the podcast, and we, we've really hesitated to talk about them in the last couple of months because we wanted to wait to see what new would happen. So they filed for bankruptcy protection. You've been pretty critical of the management of this company. Um, but I wanna go beyond the, the, the current mistakes that we've talked about and give people some context on how, why the company was founded. What it was set up to do, and how it got to be the company that we know today—that's kind of fallen on its face.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a—it's a tall order <laughs> to do in a uh, in a podcast. But i, I think that you know the, the underlying premise of Sun Edison was that that people wanted to buy you know solar as a service, right? That uh, that before Sun Edison was founded, Powerlight was really the largest solar developer, and they basically really forced their customers to pay cash for solar projects. And what you found was that a lot of these large corporations it just didn't think that it was worth you know the precious capital dollars that they had to put them into a solar project when they could build a new store for that much or you know or upgrade a critical system. Um, and so I think the innovation that Sinison brought to the table was they said, look, you don't have to view this as critical infrastructure. You don't have to pay cash for it. You can basically just sign a long-term power purchase agreement and we'll pay for it. And then we'll sell you power just like um, your utility sells you power, and I think that that model has fundamentally revolutionized the solar industry in the U.S. and then, and I think then spilled over into India and many other mar- markets around the world. So, you know, the legacy there is is that I, you know I think that it, it's it's one of those really interesting equations, right? Basically, um, you know, you got to get a customer to actually sign a contract, right? That's where it's, the whole thing starts, and then you got so, you got to get someone to finance the contract at a reasonable interest rate. Um, and if you find that the interest rates go up, then you end up losing money on the trade, right? So ultimately, the price that you pay for the cash flow stream that the customer signs up for is directly dependent on the interest rate that you're paying. I think, you know, in Sun Edison's case, they thought that they were, you know, defined the laws of gravity with the yield co and actually thought that they had structurally reduced the cost of capital. Um, and it turns out that, you know, like that when they bought First Wind and they did a first uh, another couple deals that, you know, investors bought it, but then when they did more work and more analysts, you know, dug in, they realized, wait a second, you know, they didn't defy the laws of gravity. They just hoodwinked us by paying too much for these assets, and then they, they corrected the stock.
3: Okay, so this is a boring, basically a construction company that turns into a company that's uh, doing a lot of financial engineering uh, run by tech folks who... Are trying to push the company in a lot of different directions. At what point did that shift happen, and what are the lessons for other large companies looking to grow and ride the, the the wave of this market? So there's nothing wrong with financial engineering. I mean, I get the fact that
1: a lot of folks have you know read or watched The Big Short and now you know feel like everyone's basically um, you know playing with funny money with mortgages. But like when you look at what Solar City's done recently, where they've you know, gotten tax equity treatment from U.S. Bank. They've gotten um, asset-backed securitizations and debt raised through uh, S&P, Kroll, and Moody's um, you know, rated paper. And then just recently this week, they sold um, their sponsor equity that they had left on their balance sheet to, to John Hancock. Um, you know, like as long as all three of the parties understand what they're getting into and actually believe that they bought something that was valuable um, and are really doing their homework, then I think then that is a sustainable model. It's not about the financial engineering, it's about when, when you go to Wall Street and raise a bunch of money for a Terraform, which are really just a bunch of you know, Fidelity and Charles Schwab and some pension funds are just buying some stock, and then they leave it to you to go out and buy assets, and then you take that money and go overpay for something by 40%, then they're not actually doing due diligence on that particular trade, they're doing due diligence on the stock and hopeful that you're gonna manage it well. Whereas in SolarCity's case, I'm sure that John Hancock looked at that paper Six Ways to Sunday before they agreed to buy that buy that paper, right? So at this point, if John Hancock makes money, it's because they did a good job underwriting, and if they lose money, it's because they did a bad job underwriting. But Solar City didn't cheat them or mislead them in any way, like Sun Edison did with Terraform investors.
3: Chris, you've written an enormous number of Sun Edison stories. What's the most interesting piece of this company's downfall that, that uh you've been writing about. Actually, let me, let me rephrase this, because you wrote a story recently explaining why this was not indicative of the broader market, right? and I think a lot of people in the renewables industry are trying to tell that story, and they're saying, hey, look, the, this is a company that mismanaged itself, but there are a lot of other companies doing interesting stuff, and then you looked at what was happening broadly in the market, and you talked to a lot of people on the finance side and on the, the development side. Um, how do you put this into context for readers?
2: Well it seemed like <clears throat> a long time ago uh, over a year ago there there was some concern that uh, Sun Edison was paying too much for uh, the projects they were uh, project developments they were buying and uh, I think when they uh, agreed to buy vivant uh, it it brought on a new level of risk that investors weren't willing to accept uh and that made their borrowing costs that much higher. Uh, so it, it became a cascade that uh, was ultimately unmanageable. Uh, but I, I don't think it's going to have any impact on the rest of the industry, except that it may slow down or increase uh, borrowing costs for other developers temporarily.
3: Yeah, I guess the, the most immediate impact, right, is that the projects that it's selling off are, they're flooding the market with projects. I mean, in, in India, I think Sun Edison has contracts for a quarter of the projects in that country. Is that right, Jigger?
1: Yeah, but I, but I don't think that the flooding of the market matters. There's so much money out there that there's actually enough money to buy the projects. I think Chris is right, though, that the people who have money are now double-checking their homework and triple-checking things, and, and that is leading to slightly higher prices, or slightly higher, sorry, borrowing costs, lower prices. Um, and, and that's, I think, fair, right? When a bubble pops, which is really what happened with the yield goes, then, you know, everyone reassesses whether they were doing their calculations correctly. Yeah.
0: I, I wouldn't be so quick to say that it will have no effect, you know, because there is market sentiment, and that's, that matters. Like, if you think about... Um, a few years ago, when Solar City was going public, uh, that company, you know, Solar Finance, uh, benefited from the uh, low cost and drop, dropping costs of solar panels, which caused solar manufacturers to go bankrupt or out of business before you know Sol- Solar City was trying to go public. So its business was basically benefiting from. Not necessarily those bankruptcies, but from uh, the low cost of solar mm-hmm. panels. At the same time, when it was going public, um, it had a really hard time telling that story, and having solar in its name was a huge liability for it. Um, and they, they that, had to
1: reprice their they, they, stock down twice, I think, twice. before went public, right? And they,
0: they, the you know the investors. The venture investors had to buy into the IPO to kind of prop it up. And uh, it went out at a very low price, which the VCs left some money on the table, it ended up. But but um, that that was all market sentiment that didn't really have to do with fundamentals of the business itself.
1: So. But we're in a different place now, right? I mean, that was, that was sentiment from the Solyndra mm-hmm. backlash. I mean, this is like, I mean, we're going to put $45 billion out the door this year as an industry. Over 50% of all new electricity uh, capacity additions in the U.S. are going to be solar. I mean, with solar plus wind, it'll be closer to 80%. Um, At this stage, you're talking about Con Ed, Dominion, Southern Company, Duke. um, You know, the vast majority of their new power plant investments are solar. Um, You know, I don't don't think market, market sentiment's going the wrong way. I think people are going to... Sharpen their pencil, but I think people are bullish on solar.
4: I, so mean, you, I was just going to say, so you don't think it's because the market doesn't understand this industry? You think it's because the decisions were made at the leadership level that were not that didn't allow the market to, you know, support this company?
1: You mean the downfall of Sun Edison? Yeah. No, the, well, the downfall of uh, Sun Edison was that they violated the trust of investors. I mean, ultimately, investors said, "You guys have a long track record of knowing what you're doing." We're going to give you a bunch of cash, you know, based on the prospectus you gave us on the IPO. And then they use that money to overpay for projects by 30 or 40 percent, right? I mean, they didn't have to overpay for projects, but that's what they did. You know, where SolarCity, every time Solar City goes to market with an ABS, they got 14 people, like, you know, crawling into every orifice trying to figure out whether it's priced correctly. Right? S&P's doing this and this person's doing that, et cetera. So it's not very easy for Solar City to pull a fast one on somebody because they've got all these people
2: double-checking the numbers. And, and they're not buying projects from other developers. They're developing in Well, well house. that's
3: true, yeah. Speaking of market sentiment, Yulia, uh, is solar a dirty word in the venture capital world? I mean, there's just not that much activity in clean tech. We have seen some interesting stuff in, in the battery storage space, in the software space but there really isn't that much money going into hardware. And VCs are understandably skittish about the clean tech space. Would you characterize it that way?
0: So I I think it's interesting because 2015 was a a blockbuster year for venture capital overall, right? If at some point, it, it was reasonable to say that a good venture capital year is thirty billion dollars invested into startups in the U.S. Last year, it was more than seventy billion, right? And and VCs were putting money into lots of different things, lots of you know, lots lots of uh, companies and businesses that were crucial for our society, such as you know, fantasy football and. <laughs> um, and so, so you have all of that going on. And um, clean tech, in the meantime, is you have this limelight and the skit is kind of in the corner, right? Out of the limelight completely. So um, the amount of money that went into clean tech overall um, shrank as a percentage and also declined yeah. um, year to year last year. Um, and now... So, so Cleantech wasn't getting much love in that period of time, and now the VC market is much more skittish overall. I so. mean,
3: help me understand what's going on here, because you do have successful stories in Tesla thus far. You have someone like e- Elon Musk who's trying to build a rocket company, build uh, an electric vehicle company, and build a solar company, and by most accounts is doing a pretty darn good job at it thus far. You have people like Peter Thiel, who criticized venture investors for not being bold enough, who said, you know, we wanted flying cars. Instead, we got 140 characters. Uh, And, you know, he talks about investing in next generation nuclear, in space travel, in uh, biotech. Mm -hmm. But we're not getting that. Why Mm -hmm. are we not getting that? Math. What's that? Math.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Just, it doesn't add up. So so, um, California... uh, uh, the retirement teachers' retirement system invested some money into clean tech over the years into funds and co-invested into startups. And it puts out a, um, a report. And, and so in, in uh, June 2015, they tallied up their um, uh, investments and they said that for every dollar they invested, they now they think they're holding 73 cents. <laughs> um, and that's, mo- that's still mostly unrealized. And so I just, I, I copied one of the, uh, from, from that report, if I could read a sentence. Uh, unlike most other sectors, which have recovered since the recession, the clean tech sector continues to be lackluster. Staff believes there is potentially remaining value yet to be realized. So that's like a pep talk right there, right? Like, <laughs> We're going we're to get that. Um, so um, you're right that there have been some, some, some successes, like great ones, like Tesla and, you know, Nest returned a lot of money to VCs, right? Um, but on the whole, there have been so many bad stories. They, um, you know. Like
2: from thin film... Uh, solar oh, absolutely. manufacturers, battery, battery manufacturers, those technologies were supposed to be uh, able to exit by now, and, and they aren't yet.
1: Well, I mean, Eric Wessoff's piece on Vinod Koso's portfolio showed that he's had way more losers, um, and I don't think he's had a single you know, out-of-the-ballpark winner. I think he's got a couple of deals where he's sort of at par or may have sold it for like 20% more, but... Um, yeah and I think Bill Gates has had the same luck i mean they just
0: they went together yeah they,
1: they laid off a bunch of people at light sale recently um, look, I mean this is why i 'm so anti this whole r and d push it's not like it 's always good to put r and d to work like i mean no one 's anti r and d dollars from the government, but this notion that like that venture capitalists who have a four to five year cycle are going to find these new technologies in these really backward ass industries and force them to like buy hundreds of millions of dollars of this stuff so that they can actually get exits it's crazy right tesla if you look at what tesla solar city and nest have in common they were able to bypass the 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 old lethargic like sort of companies and go directly to the consumer right i mean they they all basically said look you know we're going to meet consumer demand and we're not going to ask permission from the utility companies we're not asking permission from government authorities or all these other people. And you know that's, you know, I mean even Tesla for instance, when they first put their, I forgot what, what size that screen is, but like that 12 inch LED screen in their Tesla Model S. Yeah, basically like that. That was illegal. Wheels, yeah. Right? I mean like it was literally illegal. The Department of Transportation was saying that's a distraction. You can't put that in there. <laughs> and and they basically said, screw you, we're going to do it anyway. And then the Department of Transportation was so in love with Elon Musk, they are like, yeah, I guess you're right. You
0: can do that anyway. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that um, what you're saying about VCs not funding this kind of stuff, it's not unlikely. I mean, they have been for, for some time, right, 10, year, ten to yeah, 5 but years real, ago. Really but really bad they lost all returns, the money. unless right. you're
1: Nancy Fund that invested in everything that Elon touched.
0: And, uh, but I think that that actually speaks to the, there's a little bit of a myth, I think, about venture capital in general, that, that you know, these are the investors that uh, take on huge risks to fund breakthrough technology. And that there is some of that. But if you look at um, the most highly valued private companies overall right now, Pinterest, Uber, Airbnb. Okay, there is some technology there, but it's not like you know an MIT professor will have dedicated her life to any of that, yeah, Stripe, right?
1: Stripe is the same, right?
0: Right. Yeah. And so th- they they what 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 VCs are really looking for um, are companies that can get to customers quickly. But this brings me to
3: another point, right? So let's talk about Next Step Living. This is a company that was trying to show that it could grow. Uh, at the scale that VCs wanted it to, they dumped mm-hmm. 80 million dollars into this company. They were chasing rebates very hard. Uh, when we saw when net metering was scaled back, when uh, you saw rebates dry up, when era funds dried up, this is a company that could not scale at the rate that VCs wanted it to. And so, when you t- look at a company like Uber or Airbnb or Lyft, these companies are spending gobs of money to try to beat. Their competitors, and you know, they claim to be profitable, but that's, that's questionable. And so it's hard for me to see how companies that are deploying projects like a Next Step Living can follow the path of an Uber and just spend their way to the top. No, but is the that a Next Step Living is a
1: little bit different, right? So when you look at Uber, Uber fundamentally was tapping into the black car market, right? They were basically saying, people already get black cars. It's a wholly unsatisfying experience, and I can talk from experience like getting dial seven or dial five or dial three or whatever it is, is crazy. And, you know, like opening up your phone and just hitting a button is so much more awesome. And, you know, and so, so they already had a market, right? They expanded the market. They got more people to use black cars and now like UberX. But the thing with energy efficiency is that they've never actually had an intrinsic market, right? I mean, outside of the oversubsidized market, Energy efficiency has never been able to prove that people en mass actually wanted to spend $7,500 to tighten up their house, right? Now, the solar is different, right? I mean, that's why you have that, that great episode of South Park where, you know, they were, like, doing Priuses and they had that organization called SMUG, you know? And, <laughs> and that's how solar works. It's great. You have a dinner party. You're like, look, I have a solar system. By inference, I'm saying you don't, so I'm cooler than you. And, but, like, it's hard to say, like, look those little painted-over holes. That's where I sprayed in foam insulation. <laughs> like, my house is way more comfortable than yours, right? Somehow I feel like a lot of people in this room would do that, though. But the Nest... <laughs> But the Nest thermostat's the same, right? Like, you go in and go, like, what do you have? Oh, you have that ugly, like, Johnson Controls thermostat? I have this beautiful Nest thermostat. And look at my app on my phone. Isn't it awesome? Like, I mean, is it, there's this whole thing, right, about, like, and so the problem with Next Step Living was that it's just, like, at some point, like, logic can't get you there. There actually has to be real intrinsic consumer demand for, for the product that you're selling.
0: And they also had the, the they also depended to, to, to scale and to go into other states. They had different rules in different states, different energy efficiency programs. Solar wasn't the same as energy efficiency, right? So, and, and, and these programs don't work the same way in every place. And I, I think they, I, I, the VCs, I think, really wanted to be like some of these tech companies wanted this company to be like that, that if, if the idea was that if you grow revenue really quickly, then you will be super valuable. But in that case, first of all, it doesn't work in every case in tech, obviously, too, and it definitely didn't work for, for them.
3: Yeah. Uh, Catherine, I think we've tried to put this in a market context thus far. I want to put this in a political context. <laughs> so Abengoa, NRG, Next Step Living, these are all companies that have touched ARA Funds, that have gotten government support. And in 2012, if you had seen some of these companies struggle post Solyndra, we would have seen a pretty dramatic response in Washington. And the response doesn't seem to be as uh, intense this time time around. I'm just curious what the storyline is politically.
4: Yeah, we haven't seen any blowback politically. And partly it's because the industry has come a long way thanks to the ARA funds, the industry is actually a lot further along than it was back then. And and that's because we decided as a nation to invest. We came up with a lot of success stories. So yes, there's some failures, but that's sort of natural. I mean, there were way more successes um, from the stimulus and, and also from other um, policies like tax policy. Um, but I think what we're seeing is um, there just has not been a real policy conversation in the political arena right now about clean energy yet it just it hasn't happened except between bernie and hillary clinton and that's it i mean there hasn't been any discussion on the republican side about anything meaningful on energy that i've heard so so that hasn't that storyline and that meme hasn't come up you know, I hear people who don't know anything about energy say, oh, I keep reading about these solar companies. But you can always say, look, this was an aberration. This is not what the industry. If you look at the industry, it's strong.
3: Yeah, and I mean, that seems what, what everybody across the industry has been saying that. And yeah. I think but, but does there need to be a political response to energy efficiency? I mean, yeah.
2: it's an economic yeah. thing. It, it's, it makes sense economically well, if you can find the money up front to reduce your energy usage.
3: Well, I I don't know. I think that there is a a growing need for a political response from the energy efficiency industry's perspective. You have folks like Ark Levinson, who wrote a paper questioning whether California's building codes have supported energy efficiency. Uh, You have a lot of folks questioning the results we've seen in state-level programs. The modeling is very complex. We haven't been able to guarantee savings. There's a push for metered energy efficiency. And these are all very political conversations. We've historically relied on uh, complicated models to tell us that weatherization works, and now all of a sudden people are questioning those results that we've been pushing for the last 30 years. And I think a lot of folks in the efficiency industry, for example, are defensive for that reason.
4: But I think there's a difference between politics and policy. I mean, those are all policy questions. So the issue is, yeah, you might have a political someone in the political sphere who has a goal who wants a state to do x and we'll talk about new york shortly but it's the policies that you put into place that make that happen or not and i think for efficiency it's always been really tough like all these other things we're talking about are things that people really want they desire um park mobile man that's like the best but that's like a market that's there all you got to do is put like an app it's already yeah. created for you. It's something people need. Efficiency is so much harder to get at and try to get people to, to well, really I mean, access and... it. Unless, you know, Nest can get to that. Something like a Nest could do it. But you well, have it's to... Cool. It's something else that people want, not the efficiency. As
2: long as you're not trying to change their behavior.
1: Mm-hmm. No, no, but even... Look, I mean, even if you're trying to change their behavior, I, I just think that there's... there There is this conflagration of like technologies, right? I mean, clearly appliance efficiency standards have worked great. George, H. D- George W. Bush's ban on incandescent light bulbs has worked fantastic. Um, so you've got some stuff there, which I think has gone really well. I think some of this really complex stuff around building codes, um, there's been a lot of admissions that the baselining was incorrect. And now, you know, they're going back in to try to fix it, and Matt Golden's done a lot of good work there, and is listening there and trying to figure out how we change our policies to reflect, you know, like what the data is showing. But um but I look I, I do think that this notion that that, you know, on all these curves for climate change that we're gonna just magically use thirty percent less electricity through energy efficiency, I mean, you know, Emory lovins has been trying to say that since nineteen seventy five and that has not worked.
4: Yeah, one thing I wanted to ask the reporters is, are you seeing investors change their behavior based on a lot of these climate reports? So based on what globally leaders are doing on climate, on setting prices on carbon, you know, whether or not we do that, are you seeing investment shifting um, globally as a result of that in clean tech?
2: I can't say I've seen it in the marketplace. Uh, uh, If you look at stock prices, solar stocks are faring much worse than even coal stocks are right now in the U.S. Uh, But there is, you know, this underlying demand that will support uh, increased investment. And I I think there is a a bit of a disconnect between uh, what uh, investors see in the growth of the market and, Uh, the stock prices we're looking at now.
3: You clearly see a lot of Wall Street banks putting billions of dollars into this industry, and I think they would be doing that absent any sort of uh, international climate deal. What you do see that's changing, in my opinion, is now you've got the development banks, all the international financial institutions saying, we're not going to finance coal plants anymore. We're going to put big funds together to develop uh, off-grid solar, off-grid lighting systems and that really is a structural shift in the way that a lot of the international development banks have operated. Um, my guess is that it hasn't yet had a huge impact on what, say, the project investors are are, are doing, but there, there has been an impact thus far. And then, of course, the divestment movement is, uh, you know, starting to have have an impact as well, although not totally material yet.
2: And, and utilities are preparing for the clean power plan, whether or not it gets overturned by uh, the supreme court it 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 's something that all utilities feel like is a risk for them, so they cannot continue to invest in new coal, for instance, and are gradually shifting to more gas, which is uh, an economic replacement anyway because of shale gas
0: and i I remember that you know ten years ago, right there was a lot of um, there were a lot of investors interested in in clean tech um, and, and vcs i feel like a little bit of may, maybe other investors too like lemmings right like they need they need someone to be very vocal and it shouldn't be the politician or or government in germany it should be another big investor and then they pay attention, so they were paying a lot of attention to climate um, discussions, to government policy at a certain time. But after they lost a lot of money, and these big investors are not talking about this anymore, they're yeah, well, not listening. They're not. John even interested cried anymore. on
1: stage, right? <laughs> oh yeah. And now he's out from Kleiner Perkins, right? So, um, look, I, I think um, the thing that peeves me about this whole thing is that is that we keep talking about companies like. The company part matters here, right? I mean, when you look at clean it tech, does matter. I don't think it does. I mean, the vast majority of the money going into wind and solar is going to project finance, right? So when you look at Bloomberg New Energy Finance's data, it's like 75 to 80% of all of that capital is going to project finance. And I can tell you for a fact that like Wells Fargo Bank like, is losing their shirts on the fracking industry right now they're not losing a
3: single dollar on all of the projects that they've invested in for Sun Edison. Yeah, but when a when a when a company like Sun Edison that controls a large major or majority, a large number of projects blows up, that's a big deal. We should be focusing on the health of these companies.
1: Right, but but the thing, but you asked about following the money, right? And my point is is that when you talk to pension funds, when you talk to insurance companies, when you talk to other people who don't actually talk a lot, they don't have a lot of press releases and other stuff. They're really happy with their investments. They're putting in billions of dollars of additional capital this year than they did last year. Um, you know, I mean, just four years ago, we were talking about how there was a natural uh, barrier of $6 billion total for the solar wind industry of tax equity. We've blown through that such that the solar industry alone will be using $15 billion of tax equity this year. Where did that come from? All sorts of places that no one 's reported on, but there 's a lot of like high net with individuals, corporations, others that are putting money out the door on tax credits that they were investing in low income housing or or you know historical tax credits or other types of tax credits they 've shifted over to renewables and and, and that 's moving up and to the right without any without any like sort of end in sight right and so that money is going in you know and now you 've got all these crowdfunding sites where they 're trying to get Millennials and like you know, and other folks to invest their retirements into, you know, very simple sort of debt instruments, making six, seven percent returns, um, which is far better than prudentials annuities are paying these days. And um, so I think that's a huge good news story. It's just they're not the people on CNBC talking about what they're investing in.
3: Yeah, I think that's a good point to end on, which puts a lot of this into context. And I, I guess um, I'll ask. Aside from the emotional distress I'm sure it's caused you, Like, does Sun Edison's failure matter that much then, given what you just said?
1: Well, so, I mean, I think it matters a lot, but, that, but for an entirely different esoteric reason that I don't think the reporters have sort of realized, which is that, like, so if you're, if you're somebody that you know, busted your butt and got 50 to $60 million worth of solar and wind projects developed and off the ground and built, um, your exit doesn 't exist now because sun edison 's gone. right The only exit that you had was terraform there 's no place to go like i mean you 'd hire marathon capital and you 'd say hey why don 't you sell this to X, y Z but a lot of those buyers want to buy a minimum of two hundred or three hundred million dollars worth of assets they don 't want to bother because how much how many fees can marathon possibly make on a fifty million dollar sale so if you 're sitting there with a sub scale portfolio of solar and wind assets it 's very hard to figure out. Who's going to go and monetize that for you right now? And Edison was the only player in the market that was monetizing those assets for people. Um, and so you see a lot of folks stuck with you know term sheets that are worthless right now in New Jersey and other places that are looking for exits that can't find them. So, but
2: some of the other yield companies are operating just fine. If you look, but at they're not
1: buying other people's assets. No, so no, 3, internally, Nextera. Right, right. I mean, that's what I'm. I mean, I'm just saying. The question was whether Sunnyside you know, left a hole in the market, mm-hmm. and they have. I mean, I think for a lot of these smaller players who had small regional real estate investors who invested in the projects, now five years has gone by, they really want an exit, and there's no one to exit to. There's nobody out there that's, you know, put up their shingles saying, we want to buy those assets.
3: Okay, let's talk about New York. So the last time we were here, we were talking about the embryonic phase of New York's plan to remake its electricity sector, reforming the energy vision, which I'm sure everyone here is very, very familiar with, uh, to turn this state into a renewable energy, a distributed energy paradise, a free market paradise for for these technologies. So there's there's a lot more to talk about two years later. I think we still are in this embryonic phase. Clearly this is going to be a long-term shift. Um, There are some real ideas on the table now about rate design, about market control. We've got some pilot projects now in the works to prove out some concepts. Um, but everyone, I think, realizes how complex this process really is, and I, I want to talk about some of that complexity. So, at the same time, New York is, in, you know, investing in battery R and D. Solar City is still building out its manufacturing plant. We heard about community solar and community choice aggregation expanding here. We've got this compromise on net metering in the works. Um, what does all this add up to here in New York? Um, someone ran just ran out of the door. They- <laughs>
4: Uh, they were chugging because of the Sun chugging. Edison. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was too much <laughs> Sun Edison talk.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so what does all this add up to? Uh, Catherine, what, what is your opinion on where the REV process, how the REV process has gone thus far? You've been an active participant. Yes. You've proposed some ideas. Yeah. There are so many ideas on the table. Two years on, how would you characterize where we're at?
4: Yeah, so there are over 200 stakeholders. I think what this shows is that if you build it or start to build it, they will come. Um, There are lots and lots of innovators looking at what they can do, proposing um, new ideas, trying to make sure that the process is transparent. I mean, the really good news is that there have been... Lots of filings, not lots of responses. I feel like i 've written a lot of those <laughs> um, for people, but you know it, what it 's done is it 's created a lot of energy around how do we think about things differently and it 's really moved all of us to think about how do we how do utilities actually make a revenue when you have third parties coming in and offering other um, opportunities to consumers. How do consumers participate? How does then the regulator look at the utility? And how are they gonna allow them to recoup their investments? Or what, are, you know, what is their investment gonna really be? So I think while we're, we're looking now pretty far down the road as to like, how things are gonna spin out, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. And I think that's healthy. I think it means that we're talking about things that we hadn't before, things had kind of stagnated a little bit, and now we're looking beyond that metering. Like, let's think about what are some other ways we can calculate the value of everything, not just solar. Um, But how do we kind of change the whole paradigm? And it isn't something you can do overnight. I think New York is doing it in a way that's really interesting and transparent um, in a lot of ways, I think. There's going to to be a lot of data out there we can use to try to figure out, you know, what's going on and how do we resolve the third-party utility consumer issues. Um, We still have a ways to go.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris, you've been following the REV process, right, a little bit? Sure. Uh, What is – we were talking about the locational pricing and um, that being an important – transition for net metering as as part of this discussion about rate design within the REV process? Is that something that you're covering a lot? And Well, I, I'd like to cover it more, but my editors aren't that interested. <laughs> um, I, I think everybody who is, is interested in this subject is in this room right yes. now. Yes. <laughs> so uh,
2: let me say that I, I these are really interesting ideas that are being proposed in New York and and finally just a month ago we we got an understanding uh, through the uh, compromise between the solar industry and Con Edison about how uh, this sort of local pricing for distributed resources is going to work and it's going to be set, you know, uh, occasionally every other year, you know, you get a price for this region that's where we want to put resources to reduce strain on the grid in, say, Manhattan. Um, and the idea is that you know, utilities have to share that information with potential developers. Uh, we don't know how exactly that's going to work yet, um, but at least they're, they're at the same table together talking, and we're getting a clearer picture of how it might work. I, I just worry that it's it's overcomplicating the issue and that you know it's all going to collapse at some point.
3: Every time I have a discussion about Rev with someone, I think that's the most common phrase. We don't know exactly how it's going to work yet, <laughs> but it's going to be really great when it does. It's going to be great, cool. <laughs> uh, Jigger, what concrete are you? Do you feel like we've figured out as part of the Rev process? How do you think that the process has gone so thus far?
1: Well, I mean, I certainly think that there was a tremendous amount of excitement. Um, you know, and then that's sort of the 200 people that are actively part of the process. I think that, um, you know, the number of people who have actually gotten contracts um, to do stuff is pretty low. Uh, the battery guys haven't really been able to crack into New York very successfully. The I think the BQDM project, which is the Brooklyn sort of um, uh, substation in Brownsville, um, you know, is the poster child for Rev? It's a 1.2 billion billion dollar upgrade, and you know ConEd with the Public Service Commission thinks that they should be able to avoid that transmission distribution uh, substation upgrade for about 200 million. Um, Conad's put out less than 40 million bucks, I think, out the door, um, and all the sort of startup companies they haven't given any contracts to like Nextera or AES or Microsoft or others who've. But those all, are coming. And and through well maybe and through yeah.
2: the the microgrid project that they're doing I well agree. so
1: that's what saved their ass was right. I think the the microgrid projects which you know Micah was running or is running um, you know really has brought a, a, like you know a lot of excitement back to the process and a lot of folks got their hundred thousand dollar grants to do their feasibility studies and now the next stage is being adjudicated and folks are really excited about that but. I definitely think that you know there's going to be a moment of truth in August or September around bQDM, and if Conad comes back and says we tried our best, but we couldn't find anybody competent enough to actually solve this problem, then Audrey's going to have a pickle on her hands because Audrey's going to have to be like, Well, am I going to force you to do it anyway because I know it's possible, or am I going to have to actually like sit there and go?" you know, like Con Ed
3: threatening that people are going to go into rolling blackouts there is something I have to take seriously. Yeah, but I mean, but that's the risk, right? And we were talking about California, yeah. and you were saying that the CPUC and the CEC's warning that we were going to have blackouts because of the gas leak at Aliso Canyon. You said that that was BS. It and that we BS. do have the demand-side management tools in place to make up for that gap. So now what you're saying is in New York that we might not be able to... You know, fill in. A, no, no, I, I know that we can I mean, like, so what Southern California
1: Edison did, which I thought was good, was they did this RFO and provided um, contracts to people like STEM and, you know, uh, Advanced Microsystems um, and, you know, Evaporcool and Ice Energy and others to basically say you are now responsible for delivering you know, 40 megawatts, 50 megawatts worth of load and responding to our signals in such a way. Yeah, and NCE um,
3: procured five times more than it was expected to.
1: Right, which is great, right? And now they're because I think a lot of the pressure we put on them and a lot of other people put on them, they're trying to accelerate those contracts in the last two weeks, which is interesting, so we'll see whether that happens. Um, but Conad never actually followed that process, and so now Conad's trying to backfill, and, you know, they're telling me that maybe in the next 48 weeks they'll actually put out an RFP, that looks like Southern California Edison's, but look, I mean, the thing is, if you want to, if you want this process to work, right, you actually have to be able to meet um, the very serious reliability requirements of the utility with very serious solutions from the clean tech community, and those serious solutions can't be provided by undercapitalized startup companies that have, you know, like, you know, three employees. They have to be, you know, largely anchored by folks who have era like balance sheets, AES-like balance sheets, et cetera, with some of these other startup companies mixed into the middle. Um, and we'll see. I mean, I, I think ConEd, through you know, just deer in the headlights and through you know, other sort of issues, has been very slow to deliver that. And National Grid's done a much better job in Albany, but then that's a really small project up there.
4: It's in with- their interest to succeed, though. Whose? Con Eds and I don't insurance. know that they
1: think that. Uh, my sense is that you know if you get John out over a you know stiff drink, not talking about San Edison, um, I think he's going to say I'd rather have the 1.2 billion dollars of rate base. And it's you know I I think this is this is something where I don't think rev is complex. I think rev is just a cultural change where you know in 2004 we were all talking about ballot initiatives banning gay marriage. And now, you know, the Supreme Court's actually said that gay marriage is, like, legal across the land. I mean, such a huge shift in such a short amount of time. I think Rev is sort of like saying to the utility company, you actually should grow up and be a real, like, a real for-profit company. You should actually try to provide better services to your customers and make money doing that as opposed to relying on the regulatory regime to provide rate-based returns. And I think the utilities are going, we honestly don't know what you just said.
2: (laughs) No more Monopoly diapers for you. Right?
3: (laughs) So it'll be an interesting fight. Uh, So this is a general question uh, from someone out in the audience. What does a successful Rev demo look like then? And I know that there have been a variety of uh, programs that have been proposed, some as simple as, like, you know, a a platform for helping people connect with uh, contractors and figure out their energy use, and then we have this... Um, demand side management program to, to offset a substation investment what what would be successful in your eyes like do you
1: have Well I mean like just to repeating what I just said I mean I think like to the sort of business week and wall street journal reader I think it's basically saying these substations cost a billion dollars to upgrade we could actually do it for 200 million dollars using all of the clean tech technologies that have been created over the last 15 years let's give them a shot right and those guys successfully getting a shot and offsetting a billion dollars of investment that 's pretty obvious that that 's Rev, and that wouldn 't have happened without Rev. I think all the micro stuff in terms of like um, the di- distribution level um, you know data transfers and third parties coming in and figuring out how to like make micro changes by controlling people 's refrigerators or water heaters or demand response or load control, I think that stuff's esoteric and weird and i 'm not sure a lot of folks get it yet DERs and some of that stuff but but I think people get the fact that this stuff costs a crap load of money to do it the same way you did in the 1970s. There's a whole bunch of technologies that have been invented the last 10 years. You should give them a shot, and they're like you know one-tenth of the cost of doing stuff 1970s style. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And to me, I'm sorry, it, it means that you know if you make investments in uh, renewable energy, in battery systems, in uh, distributed energy resources, then you can recoup that investment by selling some portion of that asset back to the utility and that's the thing that i think new york is struggling to kind of come up with the the solution to how to monetize that distributed resource and i hope they do it
4: yeah and my Vision of success would be that we don't have death by pilot, so it's not just BQDM. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the big and risk. That, oh look, yeah, we did absolutely. it. It's great. No, I, we what you want to have is something where you figured out how you're going to monetize all of this, figure out the business model, and then replicate it. And I think one of the best ways to do that first is going to be the muni's. I mean, the muni's are able to do it. They've got NIBUD that's funded. They can do this community choice aggregation yeah. and other interesting things where it's self-contained. And they can replicate. But I think the main thing is, like, we have to be able to do more than one project.
3: One of the things that will be interesting to watch long term is what other states do or other utilities do incrementally while New York goes through this comprehensive process. So I was at the Energy Storage uh, Association conference last week or a couple weeks ago and talking to Duke. And Duke is saying, okay, we've got all these pilot projects in our unregulated arm we're trying to figure out a way to apply this to our regulated business and we think that we can convince regulators to help us pay for storage projects for T&D deferral. Right? And we're essentially mm-hmm. doing the same thing that, that uh, Con Edison is trying to do through REV and you have utilities that are pursuing this in different avenues. And so as REV goes through this long, pro- as New York goes through this long REV process, other utilities will be doing the same thing, but just incrementally or one-off projects. And it will be interesting to see what that adds up to if it's greater than what REV has accomplished over the next few years. So that's what I'm kind of keeping my eyes on.
4: Yeah, and Duke's different because they
0: have generation. They mm-hmm. can offset generation assets, right, but right. they can't here. To, to Jigger's point about some of these um, companies having to be reliable to work with utilities, I remember that a long time ago, I think one of the California utilities, I don't remember whether it was PG, or PG&E or uh, SoCal Energy, they signed uh, a PPA with a solar space company. Do you know yeah, what, what PG&E. happened, yeah. PG&E, yeah. What, what well, happened to that? What happened to that? Yeah, like the, the solar was collected somewhere up there, and then it's going
1: to... Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, it works, and the Japanese are, like, obsessed by this idea, and it it, it works, but it's just, like... I mean, it's
0: really well, expensive. The u- but the utilities were signing these, right? Like they they needed to sign. They were kind to of signing
2: meet- them, but right. the regulators but they did. didn't approve it, right?
0: No, I well they
1: was- they they were required to hit a certain number of megawatts, right. exactly. And so they said, well, let's sign up everything in the kitchen mm-hmm. sink, mm-hmm. and that was when they were signing deals at seventeen cents a kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. So I think as soon as the cost of solar PV uh, flat plate went down, they like did everything they can to make sure that those contracts were not renewed or extended or you know, assisted in any
3: way. Screw Rev, screw Community Choice Aggregation, go with space-based solar power in New York. (laughs) All right, who wants to make America great again? Let's talk about politics to wrap up the show.
4: You got to give them something to believe in. That's right. Uh, It's
3: been, you know, difficult to find the words to describe this presidential primary season. So let's talk about it in terms that we know energy and climate. Um, How have energy and environmental issues been framed in the race thus far compared to past races? That's what I want to figure out. What are the candidates specifically saying? Uh, Now that we're looking at a very likely Clinton-Trump general election, I want to talk about those two candidates, what they've discussed in the past, what they've proposed, and what a White House under either of those folks would do for clean energy and energy in general. Uh, and then maybe we can talk about Sanders, who's obviously still in the race, and, and Kasich and Cruz, who have talked about energy and climate in, in uh, various ways. Chris, I guess I'll turn to you. What is the most substantive thing you've heard on energy in this uh, primary season?
4: <laughs> <laughs> Dig deep, man. That's uh, a trick. That, <laughs> I think that's a trick question.
2: Yeah, uh,
3: climate change is not real, and it's not man-made. Yeah, we had global cooling in the 70s, so global warming war- concerns are unfounded. That's what Ted Cruz <laughs> said. Uh, no, but, I mean, any policy proposals out there that you think are particularly interesting? I mean, Hillary Clinton has been well, talking I, about solar I think solar Clinton a lot.
2: Is, is supporting what Obama has already started uh, with the Clean Power Plan. I think you'd probably see a reversal of that uh, under Trump, but it's not clear. I, I just can't get a read on him yet at this point. Yeah. You and everyone else, yeah,
4: <laughs> hey, he's y'alls. Uh, <laughs> oh, I see um, how it is <laughs> <laughs> My fear is that they that, that they won't they haven't had a substantive conversation yet, and right. when we head into the general, i mean. I want them to talk about FERC,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: and I'm guessing they probably won't. But I would love for them to actually dig into energy policy. I mean, Clinton has been talking about wanting to have us be the next you know, superpower on clean energy for the 21st century and installing rooftop solar, and Sanders has always been very, very forward-thinking in the Senate on clean energy. So those two folks live and breathe it and talk about it all the time, but we haven't had any kind of co- policy conversation on energy at all.
3: Yeah, I don't think that that's, that's a problem with the candidates. On the Democratic side, uh, both yeah. Clinton and Sanders have put together pretty comprehensive plans yeah. to support renewable energy and to address climate change, but nobody in the debates asks them about it. I mean, you just no. you very rarely have voters or the debate moderators asking about it, and that's a problem in the way the media handles the issue not with the candidates themselves
1: I, I think it's striking how American Petroleum Institute is you know advertising heavily on this you know I'm an energy voter stuff and they well they've been doing that and, for the last you know five no but years, in the last six to eight months years. they basically like stopped fighting solar and wind and now said well solar and wind are awesome and it's part of the all of the above because I think they've realized that it's actually better to embrace us than to fight us so that, I think that's kind of cool um, look, I mean, I, I think that the, the challenge with um, both of these candidates is that they have a really hard time with um, their vision around this. I think, you know, Hillary Clinton had a great fundraiser at Lyndon Reeves' house and uh, raised a crap load of money from the solar industry and, um, and was very articulate about all of these policy issues. And I, you know, like, I, I think really, you know, really, um, there's a lot of great detailed knowledge in this space. But when it comes to sort of the broad political themes, like you know her big gaffe in the coal miners, um, the big gaffe with like Trump on the other side, where he's like, "I want to put those miners back to work." Um, you know, the bottom line is is that those coal miners are digging something out of the ground that kills people, right? And like we've determined as a country that we no longer want to kill people by burning coal, right? I mean, and this is part of the clean power plan. It's part of the mining safety work that's been done on the Obama administration. It's part of all these things. And so, you know, I think that we're at a stage right now where I care about those coal miners' families as much as anyone, but to suggest for a moment that putting them back to work is actually how we solve that problem is ridiculous. Um, and I think that the, the other part of this is trying to figure out, you know, how America leads from a technology point of view. And I think that's where Clinton has had a tough time articulating to the general public that, these are all American homegrown technologies. I mean, this notion that, like, that solar or wind were scaled up by the German program or the Japanese program or the Chinese program is one thing. But all the fundamental patents for solar and wind and some of the other things all came out of the United States, right? A lot of the, like, fundamental technologies have all come out of the U.S. This is a U.S. homegrown technology coming back to the, to the country to be deployed at trillion-dollar scale. Um, and when you think about, like... A lot of these mayors, um, you know, where, which is where I think Bernie Sanders is really screwed up. I mean, given his the fact that he used to be the mayor of Burlington, I think he could talk very, um, you know, sort of wax poetically about how mayors have a lot of power and that mayors really do control whether solar goes on schools or whether energy efficiency is implemented at scale or whether a lot of their, you know, buses are converted to CNG or to electric buses or whether their
3: he, gas. You but know, we're not at the point in the campaign where. People should be talking about the issues in that detailed of a way, I think right? Bernie I may get have the actually sense that won the nomination if you was Sanders, able to talk about this. If if you sat down with them, they would be open to that type of messaging. And and because Clinton doesn't talk about these being homegrown technologies, that's not her issue. That's an issue with politicians across the board who are supportive of this stuff. I, I think from your perspective, a lot of them have failed in the way they message around this. But I think she's done a pretty damn good job thus far in in the campaign. I mean, she's she's talked about it in that, that one gaffe that you mentioned no, in look, coal countries, she walked supportive. back a bit. But she, when you listen to the whole full context of what she said, she was talking about the incredible job growth in this industry, transitioning local communities uh, to somehow get clean energy jobs to replace these coal jobs, which you know, is a little bit of a mushy argument when you, when you dig into look, it. But I, I, she I was very making high a,
1: standards, right? And I, I don't apologize for that. I, look, when you think about what happened in the 2008 election cycle – the entire election cycle was about drilling and about fracking and how it's going to change our entire world. That is where we are on solar and wind. I mean, like, I just think that, like, to suggest for a moment that, that the fact that over the next five years, even the EIA, who I hate, you know, is saying really? that, that 80% of all new capacity additions are going to come from solar and wind. That's extraordinary. The fact that, like, you know, not even 1% of Democrats actually know this is crazy. And, And the fact that, like, you know, one out of every 80 jobs since the financial crisis has been created in the solar industry, which is higher than the number of people that have been added to the home builder industry, which traditionally has been the driving engine of blue collar growth. I mean, I just think that, like, it's it's nuts to me like when you think about forget about renewable energy and climate change and all that stuff I mean just fundamental income inequality we pay an average of 21 dollars an hour these are the jobs that people want not only because they're gonna get a job this week but because it's actually a career that they can actually feed their family on and send their kids to college based on right I mean these are the kinds of things that we're doing there's 88 counties across the United States who have so so much solar and wind these are all rural counties that we've increased their property taxes by 20 percent that's money that it's gonna go into new roads, new schools, new services from those counties. These are counties that like in the nineteen eighties were like, you know, we're booming and now are, have been written off because they're so rural that they have nothing going on. Right? I mean we've brought something back. They, these guys care deeply about keeping young people in their communities so that when they graduate from college they just don't leave and never come back. Right? That's what we're doing. You know, and, and I just think that like that Clinton hasn't figured out how to weave that story into her stump speech. I don't think anybody has, though. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I, I think, think it's,
4: on, it's on us to ask those questions, because when they when it's head-to-head in the general election, I think it's up to us to ask them those, because we need for them to be able to respond either side as to what they're going to do and what they know. And I, I'm, I know she's prepared on this, she hasn't Oh, asked. I know
1: she's prepared on She definitely talked about it and talks about it on fundraisers and all that stuff. She's super smart on these issues, but... I mean, like, look, I'm selfish. I want to get all the free publicity. I want her to use it on the stump speech. I want Check- you know, folks to talk about it on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News.
0: So so, how many jobs are in the solar sector versus how many are in the oil and gas?
1: Well, so the oil and gas sector is now net negative compared to its employment in 2009. Okay, so they've so- shed all of the jobs that they added. Um, you know, since um, in the last eight years, so that's you know that's where it is. The solar industry has added about you know one hundred and sixty thousand jobs. The home builders have added about a hundred thousand jobs, right? And um, and so yeah, no, Look, the oil and gas industry did generate a lot of temporary jobs, but they also create a lot of temporary and, you know, actually permanent now liabilities, right? And you look at North Dakota, now that everyone's left, they've got permanent road damage they have to fix. They've got all this infrastructure that's been ruined that they, have to, that they didn't get paid enough to go out and fix, right? Now they have to actually go raise people's taxes to fix it. So, you know, I don't know that they thought it was a net positive.
0: I I, I just wonder how much people care on both sides, sort of the, you know, pro fossil fuel versus... Because a lot of times the policy, you know, takes from one and gives to another in a way, right? And so... Um, well, I
1: wish that was true, but that's not true, right? Every time we pass an Energy Act, we have to pay off the vote the senators with $20 billion of
3: new tax breaks for oil and gas so we can get $2 billion for ourselves, right? Well, Yulia, uh, you bring up a really good point because a lot of this election is going to be focused on bringing jobs back here. And you have... Donald Trump, who's been very critical of international trade deals, who claims that he's going to bring jobs back to coal country, back to steel workers, back to the Rust Belt. And God knows how he's going to do it, but that's why a lot of folks who might be independent or who might be blue-collar Democrats are interested in someone like Trump. And I think that's where energy will come into play. I, I, I think that a candidate like Trump will try to put people like Clinton on the defensive or the renewable energy industry on the defensive and saying like you're trying to strip jobs away mm-hmm. and really appeal to the voters that are interested in a candidate because like because there like are Trump. so
0: many right it's one thing when you when you when you're saying that you know fossil fuels don't deserve, sh- we shouldn't drill or we shouldn't like you know Bernie's Bernie's plan shuts down almost everything, yeah, right? Nuclear and natural With like gas. Everything right. is, yeah. is, is just gonna candles and all that but, <laughs> but
1: yeah. how, how are you we gonna do electricity? Well, power. you know, I'm gonna make this policy and yada yada yada'll be fine.
0: But the thing is that <laughs> when people are when people are employed in these industries and the candidate says we're gonna get rid of these industries, it's a very direct uh effect on your life. Um versus a lot of what we're talking about um, on the side of clean energy, you know, the, the, the benefits are kind of mo- removed a little bit. They're not like on your skin, they're yeah. not touching you. And so I, I remember talking at one point with, with, with an executive at a, a big uh, uh, environment, uh, environmental uh, nonprofit um, who was very kind of annoyed by the fact that people don't care as much as they should about climate change and and environment and all that. And he said that he basically wished for, like, a tsunami to hit New York. And at that point, people will start caring. Well, that kind of happened. We had
4: Sandy. (laughs) I mean, that helped.
0: Yeah.
3: Catherine, any other thoughts on the substance of what Clinton's been talking about?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think we, we haven't heard... The beginning of it, really. I mean, we've she has plans for when when we talk about coal jobs. Those are not people who are actually working right now. I mean, my my a lot of my family is in Appalachia. They're, those people aren't working at all. So if somebody can come in and show some hope, not like oh hey, let's go back into the coal mines, but hey, here's something in solar you can learn how to do how to install rooftop solar. You all own homes because you've had homes forever because your life used to be good. So you can put it on your own home too. Um, I think once we start getting specific that will really help. Um, I just hope we get that. I, I hope we get that. I hope we get more nuanced discussion. So far, it has not been at all. Do you think she
1: has to come out for a carbon tax?
3: No.
4: No, no I
1: don't think so. No. Why would she? Who's going to ask her that, that question? Sounds like I, think not the no, I don't, I don't see that become, even coming up. I think no. the carbon tax has become the litmus test from the mm. McKibbons, right? I mean, ultimately, it's like, I mean, whether it's yeah, Glenn but- Hubbard from... The, like from George Bush's administration, like the Republicans, like, like Bob Inglis, et cetera, have been pushing the carbon tax. I mean, basically, your answer to that question ends up telegraphing where you are.
2: But she's a pragmatist, right? Yeah,
4: that's... Yeah, well, she that.
3: was a pragmatist until Bernie Sanders <laughs> I mean, pushed her. I don't think... I mean, the enviros have had an important influence on the primary uh, campaign, but I don't think they'll have as much influence during the general election, and I, there's no one during the debates is going to even ask that yeah. question. I just Tom don't Stier see it coming up. I don't think she's going to have to defend that position. Jay Faison's putting
1: $175 million to work. I mean, you're saying that none of these guys are going to break through? I mean, Jimmy Kimmel went on a rant yesterday. Yeah, I saw that. Like, you know, against Sarah Palin.
2: Well, sure, and she can propose it, but it doesn't mean it's going to go anywhere. Yeah, it's so cynical. <laughs> <laughs> Worse. <pretty> <laughs> uh,
3: as crazy as it sounds, though, I think that, We're better off having Trump in the running than we were Cruz because we've talked about this Cruz Wants to go to Washington and shut down Everything he can and with Trump. We just don't know. I mean he's had positions all across the map and I I mean, he'll just completely mismanage it. He won't shut it down Well, we do know that he's not competent to shut it down. I mean like
1: (laughs) I mean there are layers of bureaucracy I mean it takes years to shut stuff down
3: Like, Cruz actually has a playbook by which to Uh, break through those things. And and I think that's a lot scarier. Trump doesn't even know where to look for it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, wow, we're already almost out of time. I had a bunch of questions here. Many of them were kind of unrelated to the topic. So I apologize for not getting to a lot of the questions. But we do like to end this show off by telling our listeners something they may not know. An anecdote from our daily work lives, our reporting, a statistic... And uh, I'll turn to Catherine for her story.
4: You know, there are people who have drinking games about who you're going to ask first. Yeah, you know, and we we've had. Listeners I don't know if you know this, but like I it's always, awesome. I'm almost always asked first, which I'm totally fine. You're with. my favorite. Okay. I knew that. <laughs>
3: I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> That's right. Happy Mother's uh, Day, Catherine. We've got it.
4: Thank you. Thank you. So as I was taking the train up uh, from DC this morning, buried on page A16 of the Washington Post was an article about a World Bank report that just came out called High and Dry, Climate Change, Water, and the Economy. And it's pretty, uh, pretty significant because it showed how much GDP could go up as a result of water shortage from evaporation from heat because of climate change, agricultural use that's going up because of increased population, inefficient use of our infrastructure and our system. And what this said to me, because we were coming up here to talk about um, investment and about clean tech, was that there is this great opportunity out there for technologies that can help us and water efficiency, and water and agriculture technologies that all also have to do with energy. So everybody should look at that.
2: Chris? Uh, good point. Uh, and everyone here knows that Jigar Shah is the father of the solar PPA, the solar lease model. And the father of a new solar and, and, and probably <laughs> and probably now the grandfather of it, because there have been so many copycats doing the same thing, even even going to other uh, you know, models, even... Uh, fuel cells, turbines, gas turbines. Uh, I met the CEO of a company yesterday uh, who is taking the PPA to a totally different direction, but on the same lines of what you just mentioned. And instead of a power purchase agreement, it's a produce purchase agreement, Mm -hmm. where they uh, build greenhouses in suburban, urban areas, paid for by the long-term contracts they sign to sell vegetables, to local grocers. Um, And I think that is awesome.
1: At a discount from California produce. Yes.
2: And and (laughs) with less water use, less energy. Love it. Yeah.
3: Yulia?
0: So so I've been pretty pessimistic, right, about like VCs and all that. Um, But I I just I, I thought it's interesting that like one of the hottest new venture firms in Silicon Valley um, is actually interested in grid startups and electric grid startups and energy efficiency. Officially, like that's one of their things. So um, it's uh, Joe Lonsdale's eight partners, eight VC or eight partners. So he's the, um, he's the Silicon Valley kind of whiz who co-founded Palantir and um, had, had a fund called Formation Eight, that then right. split up into a formation group and eight. He kept the eight. <laughs> um, so so this, this fund is raising money really quickly, like for venture funds, you know, he, in, in a couple months he raised 300 million and he has this whole social impact uh, thing going on and mentioned specifically uh, Grid. And on top of that, there is also, there was a fund raised last year uh, by Ev Williams, who is a co-founder of Twitter And CEO of Medium, and uh, he raised one hundred twenty-three thousand four hundred fifty-six, seven hundred eighty-nine dollars for the fund, Silicon Valley. Um, That's really funny. And uh, Uh as the square root is of that is one point one 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 one, they they kept telling everyone um, (laughs) something. I don't know, but uh, the. I
1: thought I was like wonky. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, so that's also a social impact uh, fund, and they've actually actually invested in solar finance and in a grid company at Bali, I think. So, so there is some Silicon Valley idealism that 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 clean tech can still tap, I think.
1: Well, so that w- that's obvious ventures, right?
0: Obvious Our ventures. Yes.
3: Andrew Beebe works there. Yeah,
1: yeah. that's right. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Right.
3: I think I also saw in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that because ping pong table sales are lagging, that's an indication that the clean tech, or not, that, that the so, venture bubble is yeah. popping and so yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> they, they track very closely. They had a whole graph.
1: <laughs> pretty soon it's going to be Batman. Tigger, <laughs> <laughs> what do you got? So my number is 48 million. Right, so that's the amount of money that the Obama administration just allocated to relocate folks in a uh, mm-hmm. town in Louisiana that's uh, on basically a sandbar. Um, They've been there for years. I think they relocated there, based on the Trail of Tears, um, you know, generations ago. And uh, and so there is sixty people that live there, and uh, and they're saying it's going to be very difficult because you have forty eight million bucks. Not even one has to move; they have to find another town in Louisiana that actually wants these people, and you know, wants to integrate them and has jobs for them. And and it just seems like you know, like just talking about it. It's only sixty people. I mean, like the, that. You know that level of, you know, sort of elevation is commonplace in the Netherlands or, in uh, in you know the low-lying areas of Bangladesh. Um, you know, and we're we're spending forty-eight million dollars on sixty people. So it's gonna it's gonna get pretty expensive to uh, to relocate people because of climate change.
3: Hmm. Okay, I don't want to end on a downer. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, you know, trolling around on Twitter this morning, and a friend sent me a link to a great new band that you all should know about. It's called Raptor Command. And it is a power metal band devoted to Elon Musk. All the songs <laughs> that they play are all about the genius of Elon Musk. So here's their mission. I wrote it down. To raise awareness of and promote Elon Musk's futurist ideas... Envisions for the future of humanity through the medium of heavy metal music and subculture, and their first signal, single, their first single—is called Elon Champion for Humanity. It's a great song. <laughs> Check it out on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they have a lot more coming out. Did
1: you, did you, you saw the test of the Model S that they, or uh, Model X, that they put into into bio mediation mode or whatever, and they had all this pollution in this bubble, and they put the car in there, they turned it on, and. It it basically took all the pollution out of the car in, like, like 80 seconds. No, I didn't see that. And uh, so, like, you know, they've got this mode that you can, like, it's like called. A filtration system? It's a, wa- a bioweapon mode, right? And they uh-huh. have, like, so if there's a bioweapon that's let off around it. and And it was Larry Page's idea. Yeah. And I guess it works, and, and now it's a feature that people in India and China really want because yeah. it's so polluted yeah, there yeah.
3: that it like, you know, takes out the pollution from the car. Well, I do know they have ludicrous mode, so I damn well hope that Raptor Command is part of ludicrous mode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's going to wrap up the show. Thank you all so much for coming. We had a great time. Uh, for those listening back home, you can get all our back episodes at greentechmedia.com podcast. You can find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud on Stitcher, on any podcast app of your choice. Thank you so much to all the organizations that put together this Clean Energy Connections event. We really appreciate you inviting us here. We love, we love this place, and we love all of you for coming to check us out. So have a good night, everyone. With the Energy Gang, I'm Stephen Lacey, and uh, we'll catch you next week.